You're listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week we're sharing a highlight from this year's Human Rights Watch Film Festival, currently running here at Film at Lincoln Center. The festival is a showcase of acclaimed works that bring human rights struggles to life through storytelling. At opening night last Friday, we presented the New York premiere of Advocate. The film follows a Jewish-Israeli lawyer, Leah Semel as she and her Palestinian colleagues prepare for their youngest defendant yet, Ahmad, a 13-year-old boy implicated in a knife attack on the streets of Jerusalem. The screening was followed by a Q&A with director Rachel Leah Jones, Layat Semel, human rights lawyer Jamil Dequar, and moderated by Human Rights Watch senior counsel Balkis Jara. Let's go now to their conversation. Welcome. We're really thrilled to have you here. Um, We have about 40 minutes for the discussion uh, this evening. For the first half of the discussion, I'm going to be posing some questions to our panelists, and they'll be sharing some reflections with us. And then for the second half, I'm going to throw it out to all of you in the audience, and I'm sure you already have um, many questions. So it's a real honor to have you here um, and to have this absolutely marvelous, marvelous film. Um, So let's let's get started. Um, Rachel, uh, I'd like to turn to you as the filmmaker. First, congratulations on the film. Um, I, I think we'd all be interested in hearing a little bit more about the genesis of the film. How did you get to meet Leia, and what inspired you to tell her professional, her personal story, and bring it to us on the screen? And what were you trying to achieve? No idea what I was trying to achieve. We'll start (laughs) off with that and get that out of the way. Um, Sometimes you feel compelled to do things without knowing what you're going to achieve. Probably her life story is, is about being compelled to do things and not knowing if you're actually going to achieve them. But um, I met Leah um, a very, very long time ago. I'm 48 years old. I met Leah when she was 48. So that was a while back. And um, I was in my early 20s and uh, very early 20s. And I, and I thought I wanted to be Leah Tzemel uh, at the time and um, understood that nobody can be Leah Tzemel but Leah. Um, and took another direction in life. But um, it was, she's one of those people you meet and you say somebody should really make a movie about her one day. And then I went on with my life and started making movies. And then I, um, about 10 years later, Philippe Belaish, my partner in life and in filmmaking, um, came into my life, met Lea and said, somebody should really make a movie about her someday. And we said, oh. and we just waited. <laughs> and nobody made a movie about her. Uh, and so at some point a few years ago, um, Philippe said, I think that uh, somebody is us. And uh, we proceeded, um, asked Lea if she was cool with that, and she had a kind of a monosyllable answer, sure. And that was, that was about it. Um, as Philippe likes to recount, he's not here with us tonight, um, but he likes to recount that as a, he's, a, he's a cinematographer mainly, that most people, um, it takes them anywhere between three hours and three days to get used to 
the mechanics of doing this kind of filmmaking, which I wasn't even sure we were going to be making a kind of a cinema verte observational piece. In, in large part, most of my work has been more essay kind of, you know, constructed. Um, that, but to understand the mechanics of how that works, Leah understood it in about three minutes. Um, she was just intuited how to how to how to be how to be cognizant of the fact that there was a camera there and be utterly unselfconscious and just go about her business. So it was a really a, a pleasure in that sense and very easy. Um, she took us on board in her daily madness and um, and that went on for a couple of years and and that's it. Well, since you mentioned Leia, um, I. I wanted to, first of all, we're really thrilled to have you here. Um, and if I could begin by touching on a theme, uh, the theme of adversity, I guess you can characterize it as, that I saw as really providing the bookends to the film. I don't know if you'd agree, Rachel, but we see you in the first scene in an elevator with some unknown gentleman and one of them calls you, refers to you as a rebel with a lost cause. And then we come to the end of the film and we hear you describe yourself as a losing lawyer. Um, and of course, we're also exposed to all the very real dangers uh, that you and your family have experienced as a result of the work that you do. And so I guess the question is, given the odds that you face and given what seems like a very slim chance of success, what, what keeps you going? And do you think that your work has, has gotten more difficult over time? What keeps me going? Well, um, the necessity, the, the feeling that it, I must do what I do and uh, the knowledge that it's important. Uh, not that I really managed to change the reality or change really the verdicts of different uh, youngsters as we realize, maybe here and there. But I think it's more important to be there, to be a witness, a daily witness, to try again and again to create some change in the system, to... Um, strip the, the system from its uh, gowns to show what it really is, to try and show what it really is, and uh, to keep hoping. I, the, the genuine, it, it appears also in the film, but it's genuine. I really feel it in my guts every time again and again that this time it will be different. Some would call it stupidity, some would call it... Uh, <laughs> I don't know, uh, optimism, some kind of optimism. And for sure, it is a true belief. Now, uh, the situation is not, has not uh, improved from the beginning of the film when I'm, I'm telling the Israeli journalist uh, that I'm the future until now. Um, and I think it strengthened what the, my, the saying that there is no other future. And I would say briefly, and many of you around here are Israelis, some of you live here, and we all know that there is this attempt of Israeli 
Jews, including good Zionists, to look for an extra passport just to be on the safe side. Right? We all know it. And I still keep saying the only answer for our future, a mutual future, a reasonable future, is being together, living together in equality. Well, I mean, you, your optimism brings me to a moment in the film where there, there is quite a, a success that you experience. Um, and it's toward the end of the film where one of your colleagues, also a leading human rights lawyer, um, is asked by Rachel, uh, I guess, what is justice? And his response is quite jolting. Um, says he doesn't have an answer because he doesn't believe in justice. And for, speaking for myself as somebody who's dedicated their professional life to the cause of justice and accountability, that was very hard to hear him say. Um, and I don't know whether, how you experienced it. Um, and so I'd be curious um, to hear a little bit more about that in the context of that 1999 uh, Supreme Court case, yeah, which was a real high point, right? Yeah, the Supreme Court case was very unique because uh, nine judges decided after nine years of uh, different lawyers and human rights activists and human rights organizations to bring about the fact that the, there is systematic torture imposed by the security services on the Palestinian detainees. And uh, during the interrogation, of course. And finally, the decision of the Supreme Court of Justice was in 1999 that it is true that the security services have used all these years illegal measures and they should stop using it. Uh, as you heard, it was for us a big achievement, enormous happiness too. And it was, uh, how do you say, minimalized with the time being. And nowadays, the security services are still very successful in achieving confessions in illegal matters, a little different than before, but still it goes on and even they, they have these attempts against the uh, Jewish terrorists uh, that complain in the open against the misbehavior of the security services. But and here there is the split of, of ideas. Yeah, there are some lawyers who say there's no, nothing to do and they are uh, despaired. And uh, there are those, as I said, this stupid optimism that says, yes, we have to keep going, keep working. Can I, can I take from, from that comment that you believe that it's possible for Palestinians to realize justice in Israeli courts? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if realizing the justice will be in Israeli courts or in different courts or in Hague perhaps, or in some United courts one day, who knows. But I think the justice finally will come about. That's, uh, I'm sure about it. When, how, in what combination, I don't know. Jamil, 
um, as a, a Palestinian lawyer who worked in Israel for a number of years, could you could you tell us a little bit about your experience with the uh, judicial system there? Um, you know, the two cases that are featured in the, in the film, I believe, take place in a Jerusalem, a civil Jerusalem court, but that's only one part of the legal regime that uh, Palestinians are subject to. So I think it would be useful if you could maybe walk us through why people are tried in different courts under different laws, whereas they may have been accused of the same crime in the same place. What, why is that? Right. Um, first of all, I want, must say congratulations uh, for the film. It's a really uh, extraordinary film. I, this is uh, now the second time that I see it, because uh, I got, uh, you know. Uh, yeah. But I, I, I want to say, you know, about Leah, because I, I got to know her or first read about her when I was in law school. Because you get to, to, to study those case laws and they, you know, the attorney representing the defendant or the petitioners, particularly in a lot of cases that are not the criminal law cases, because Leah also appear, appear before the courts in cases challenging, as she talked about, uh, policies by the Israeli occupation forces uh, in different contexts, deportations, and, and people who were not necessarily criminal defendants, but they were really... Uh, subject to military orders and violations in that context. So to me, it was like a, really a big uh, uh, model, uh, role model for, for you know, young lawyer. And I think one, one, the first time I saw, I saw her was in the Supreme Court. I, in law school, I researched, uh, helped research a case, the deportation case, the, the famous 415 Palestinians who were deported with no hearing, no due process to South uh, Lebanon. And uh, I, I helped research the case because my brother-in-law was, was one of the attorneys and, and uh, you know, got to, to, to go to the court, the Supreme Court, to see one of the arguments sort of me that I, was, I finally got to see Leah Tzema. Uh, and over the years, of course, you know, uh, followed what, what she's doing. But one, one important thing to take from the film is I think that for many Palestinians, it's a struggle to, uh, to, be, to be recognized as... Uh, uh, people under the law, as to be recognized not just as equal, but to even be, have the standing. That was always been the challenge. Whether the petitioners, the Palestinians, would be able to, to have a standing to, to challenge the particular uh, violations. Uh, because in the system as a whole has been built, I think, in, in a way, particularly in the occupied territories, in order to control and to provide the security services with the legitimacy to control the, 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 the population, the Palestinian civilian populations, and using different orders. There were about 1,700 military orders issued since 67. Part of that was to create a separate military court system that was only Palestinians would be subject to. And you've seen some images from the, the Hadassah uh, case. Uh, these court cases rarely get any publicity in Israeli system, I think. Uh, unless you have, you know, Ahed Tamimi's kind of case or other kind of cases that have some pro high profile. They work day and night like a fine-tuned machine to particularly make sure that convictions are secured. People are not, Palestinians do not get due process, do not get fair trial. Many of them are actually, don't get to a trial. 
not only because they are plea bargained, but because some, many of them are actually uh, held without trial, without charge, in, as part of administrative detention. So there's a whole separate system of military court that is designed to, to help the Israeli authorities to control and to oppress, as Leah said in the, in the film, in the early on in her career. Identified exactly what this is, what the purpose, to do just that. And while Israeli citizens, even if they live in the occupied territories, particularly settlers, are not subject to that uh, same system. Even though they commit the same offenses in commit, the same territories. Exactly. So against the same enemy, which is the IDF uh, soldiers. So the separate, the separate and unequal, and, and there's this total uh, set of laws that only apply to Palestinians. So that's why I think when it comes to justice, it is not anymore is getting a fair shot. In, in a, you know that you are stacked, the system is stacked against you. So what you're really trying to do is to mitigate and to minimize the damage and to get as less severe sentences as much as possible and to try to humanize your clients and the people and to put that in the broader context. We are talking about not just a criminal in the sake of people who hate uh, Israeli Jews who just wake up in the morning and say, that's all I, I want to do in my life. There is a reason why would people uh, uh, bring themselves to do uh, acts, of, take violent acts against Israeli civilians or against the military. By the way, most of the Palestinians who are tried, particularly children, and there are about 800 children a year that are tried and detained in military courts, most of them are uh, rounded up in the middle of the night and um, and subject to severe abuses through the whole process, severe interrogations, just like the one that was videotaped. Most of them don't get videotaped. And at the end of this, uh, they, they are the ones who pay the heavy price. They get uh, 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 detained. And today, we have more awareness in this country. And member, a member of Congress uh, introduced last year and reintroduced it again last month. Uh, Representative uh, Betty McCollum, a bill that would basically uh, says a bill, the, the name of the bill, uh, promoting the human rights of Palestinian children under Israeli military occupation detention. Uh, and last year she got 31 members of Congress to sponsor. I think that's one of the ways to, to, put shy, to shed light on what was going on, what Leah and other lawyers are continuing to struggle in that system. Can I add something to that? I'm just going to throw in a couple of statistics for, um, in case people don't know. So according to um, the um, Palestinian prisoners' rights NGO, Adamir, um, an estimated 800,000 Palestinians have been arrested, detained, um, jailed, and um, imprisoned uh, since 1967. Again, like Jamil said, with and without due process. Um, and um, that constitutes roughly 20% of the adult population at any given moment and 40% of the male population. And Leah has represented literally, not uh, figuratively, literally represented tens of thousands of them. Um, and I just thought it would be um, good to understand because when she says, I am the future, um, she's also saying, I, in fact, this is, a, this is a population which has been criminalized and incarcerated en masse. And I'm using those two terms because they're also very, uh, they resonate to an American ear um, in ways that um, people aren't accustomed to thinking about the Palestinians as a criminalized, incarcerated um, population. But 
clearly they are. And when she says, I am the future, it means I, in fact, know who it is that we are going to have to share our future with, and I know what they've been through. Because pretty much, to one degree or another, anywhere on the scale from a one to a 10, um, every Palestinian detainee has been tortured in one way or another, physically or, or psychologically. And, and there's scales. There's, there's a variety within that. I'm not making um, a total blanket statement, but that's understood to be the case given the practices. And so you're also dealing with a population who has not only been occupied for so many years, but um, such a, a huge uh, portion of its population has in one way or another at some point also been subject to some kind of form of torture. And when she says, I'm the future, she knows who she's dealing with, and she's saying, These, we, have to re we have to reckon with this in order to understand where to take things from here. Rachel, one last question for you, and then I think we're gonna open it up to the audience. Um, you, the film is seen through Leia's eyes. Um, for the most part, we see her family, of course, co-counsel, and most of the activity takes place outside of the courtroom. Um, so you see the reactions to what's happened in the court or the preparation going into court. But we don't really have a lot of the other characters in the judicial architecture featured very prominently in the film, prosecutors, judges, um, and other you know, maybe opposition voices, um, if I can put it that way. Is, was that a, intentional on your part? Um, can you speak a little bit about that? Sure, I mean, every, every film, probably, fiction or documentary, the, the right way to categorize it would be that it's the result of your best compromises. Um, and so um, you have a lot of fantasies about what you would like to do, and then you can only fit so much of it into into even, this is considered a long film. I don't know how you guys experienced it. It's 108 minutes and that's a good 18 minutes over what most people can stand for, for a feature documentary. Um, so, um, you know, it, a, a film is not a novel. It's at best a short story and you're just leaving so much out. Um, I had fantasies about bringing in judges, prosecutors, interrogators who would be kind of character witnesses of what it is to experience Lea from other perspectives. She's the woman that everyone loves to hate, but she's also the woman that everybody hates to love. And she gets, she's, she has a lot of admirers uh, within a system which people who don't agree with her politically by any stretch of the imagination, but totally adore her and or just admire her tenacity. Um, she's um, naughty, she's flirtatious, she's friendly, she cares. Um, I, this is, I don't know if, yeah, yeah she'll, she, and she has no, no sense of censorship whatsoever. So I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you, in an interview, um, it's an outtake, but in one of the interviews, she said, I never met an interrogator I didn't like, which is a very odd thing to say, especially given that Leah knows what the interrogators do, but what she meant and then she explained is basically, because I tell everybody what I think of them, I get that out of the way and after that it's sort of like, and how's your kid? Or how, you know, like, because these are human beings, including the, the bad guys. And Leah is, started out, you know, as a staunch Marxist, but the bottom line is she's a hardcore humanist and she sees the human in everybody, including people who are playing on the other side of, of you know, her opponents. 
Um, so I was looking for that in my fantasy, but when it came down to it, I had to make a choice between mostly focusing on protagonists versus antagonists, and I let go of the antagonists in the story, um, or who could be perceived as antagonists, and um, decided that in a sense that, that, that comes out in the media, that comes out in the press, that comes out in the news reports, the voice of people who don't, the voice of Israelis, rather, who don't, uh, um, or, and Israelis as a stand-in for a kind of a Western, um, northern Western political um, sensibility, can't possibly see favorably what, what Leah is doing or what her clients, you know, what their predicament is. Um, that's out there anyway. And Leah's perspective is much less pronounced in the world anyway, so I was able to let it go knowing that, that you know, it's not that that doesn't exist, because all of our films are always like, well, is it balanced? Well, maybe not inside the movie, but in the economy of the film versus the world and mass media, yes, it's, it's barely balanced, but in the, other, in the other direction. Well, I wanted to ask Leah a question about the press, but I, I do want to give room for the audience to, to ask their questions. So we, we do have two roving microphones in the room, um, and our colleagues will get them to you if you raise your hands. Um, I'd just like you to bear in mind that we have limited time and we want to make sure to have as many people participate as, as want to, so please, please ask a question and be as concise as you, as you can. I'm going to be very strict about that, so thank you for your understanding in advance. Um, right here. I, I, okay, I'm just going to say one thing before I ask the question, so I'm going to bear your indulgence. Very brief. Okay, the, about for uh, Rachel. Uh, thank you so much, and I really love the way that you actually also have the Palestinian lawyers who are also interacting with Leah sort of come out here and there, and there is also the conflicts, contradictions, and so on. But I want to ask you about the ways in which your film and the other films that you've done before actually come out and speak and give a narrative. They don't only give a narrative of what Leah says at the end, I'm a losing lawyer. She's a losing lawyer, but at the end of the day, she is a witness, and you are telling a story about refusing to, silent, to be silent, telling the story about questions of justice and injustice. And I think also for Leah, it is amazing that the fact that you are cont you've continued and you continue to speak up, because this is the future that Palestinians, Palestinian Arabs, Muslims, Christians, atheists, whatever, and Israeli Jews of all sorts and so on, actually have that kind of history and that kind of possibilities in the future. The question is, what does this mean for people in the US? No, because we're here watching a film, and at the end of the day, we end up being spectators. So what does this mean? What kind of responsibility this raises for people in the US, not only American Jews, but everybody in the US who's actually very much implicated in perpetuating what's going on in Palestine? Thank you. Thank you. Um, can, can we take that question at the very top, and then we'll come back to you? Yes. Hi. Um, the documentary reminds me of two things that I've recently um, seen. Um, so, and it brings up the, the question that was raised of context and understanding and respect. One of them is um, Ava DuVernay's miniseries, 
when they see us, which gets into obviously the lack of justice in the interrogation process. But the other one is a Palestinian um, film, extraordinary um, uh, fiction film that just opened in New York, Sarah and Salim, in which an extramarital affair crossed the lines there is politicized. I'm wondering from, that's part of a context, how do any of you see um, explaining or breaking through to societies that they believe that they are in some sense democratic and open in understanding that they have severe problems. Um, and obviously Leah has been doing this for decades. What is an approach that you think is, um, begins to be effective to make people pay attention? Thank you. I will answer her first. Uh, I think that uh, I'm joining the filmmakers uh, in a few festivals exactly in order to answer your question. The film is not just a reflection of the reality. It is also uh, supposed to call about the people who see it to do something, to be active, to change reality. And therefore, we go and uh, speak and show it and uh, the, answer, the, the answer to a question goes to this excellent uh, audience here. Everyone should go out from this movie with a decision to do something about it. Um, I want to complicate it just a teeny bit. I want to say something along the lines of, Obviously, this is about Israel-Palestine, but it's much larger than that. And that, um, you know, I, I, since my first film, um, you, we often get asked questions, sort of, you know, well, what's the solution? And I'm always tempted to answer, and it took me many years to understand that I'm not a prophet, and I don't have the answers, and I didn't choose necessarily, I'm, I think of myself as a, a certain kind of activist, but I'm not a, I'm not a politician. I didn't, I didn't make those choices. And in a sense, even though I have some exclamation points in my films, I'm more throwing out question marks and, that, and three dots. And it's up to, so I'm, I'm joining Leah in that, that it's sort of up to the audience to see what you take away with it. But I will say this, that Leah is one of those people who spoke truth to power before the term became trendy, and she'll, she'll continue to do so after fear makes it unfashionable. And um, that's in large part why I, um, I don't know why I, if, I, if it's why I wanted to make the film, but it's certainly what got me through making this film in the last few years. And I think that what we can understand from that goes, applies to people in Hungary and applies to people in Turkey and in Russia and in India under Modi and certainly in the US under Trump and Brazil under Bolsonaro. And whatever you saw in this movie, look for its equivalent in your own society, in your own community and figure out who you are in this story. A lady here in the middle, their hand up. First of all, I just want to thank you for an extraordinary film. And I cannot, I don't have words to tell you how much I appreciate what you are doing and your 
courage and your fortitude. For those of us in the American Jewish community who consider ourselves on the left, we look at Israel and see how the left is being marginalized, attacked every day. Uh, Meretz, the most democratic party in Israel, has, is now has only four seats in the Knesset, labors down to six. How can we have faith in the judicial system and have your optimism that it's going to improve when every part of the left in Israel is being attacked, be it breaking the silence, whatever it is, it's all under attack and all being marginalized. And I would like you to give me confidence as an American Jew that it's going to get better because I just don't see it. <laughs> I'll give you one example <laughs> why perhaps there is optimism after all, because this same film just won the Dokaviv uh, Prize, the first prize of the documentary films in Israel. And uh, as it is, it was shown there the way it was shown here, and uh, it was elected although the Minister of uh, Culture was against it and there were uh, many other voices, it is still, it won the first prize, so there is something, right? There is some little flame burning over there. Can I, yeah, I, can I quickly? So I think that if you're looking for a future for the left in, in Israel or Israel-Palestine, you're looking at it on this stage who are not perfectly representative, but the fact, it, it has to do with Jamil and us sitting on the same stage. And there is no potential for the left in Israel Good if trip. it's not joint Arab-Jewish democratic. Jamil? So I, I, I just wanted to say about the, uh, you know, the, the notion of, um, uh, you know, hope and what, where we can, you know, I think that my parents, uh, you know, survived the 1948 war, you know. Um, my mom is from Haifa, same town as Leah. She was born in 1939, 38. Now, when, you know, growing up, she was under military rule from 1948 till 1966. That was under, uh, you know, so-called labor, MAPA, uh, uh, Ben-Gurion's government. So, and there was a struggle, and there was resistance, and people were, were had to get, uh, you know, permits. So, and things maybe moved a little bit in a, some direction and positive, lifted the military, military rule in 66. 67, Israel occupied Jason, the West Bank, placed it, and copied and pasted almost a lot of those policies to the West Bank and Gaza. And you can, if you go back and study this literally, land confiscation, movement restrictions, deportations, everything, you name it. Now, I think what, what really is, is hopeful is the fact that people are still struggling against that kind of pressure with the hope to create something better that hasn't been tried, to create something that really is based on the notions of principles of equality that Leah stands for, that no matter what, and making people visible, because for as many Israelis, Palestinians are invisible. They don't exist. And unless they, they see a movie like this, I see, they hear from Leav and others, uh, and 
interact in a way that will see that Palestinians exist and they deserve to be treated in equal treatment and dignity. That is, I think, the hope that we all should be believing in and think about ways to translate it into reality. Did you want to say something quickly? I, um, I think it's also, there was some stupid song when I was growing up, um, it ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it, or anybody remember that? Anyway, um, I, we, there's, there, there can be a, no, God, you could, you would, <laughs> um, you would hum it. Um, there's, there's an, there's, in this room, there's probably any number of varieties on, a, on an end goal, what, what our ultimate vision is. I think that we'll, none of us will ever perfectly see any of those ends um, as we would like to see them, but they're hopefully some variety, you know, that's acceptable to us. But I think that the point in, to walk away with is sort of the point, the hope factor is how Lad does her daily life, how she does her present more than where she, we're gonna end up in the future. And let's just say that we could never end up in the future anywhere that we would wanna be if we don't do what the, I wanna say the layers of this world, but there aren't that many. This Leah does. She wakes up every morning ready to fight the good fight, um, makes um, social justice struggle or just, you know, makes, makes that fight look fun, as strange as that sounds, but brings uh, zeal and humor and, uh, and energy into it. She's not bearing a cross. Um, understands that she's that it's actually a privilege to to wake up every morning and do what she does um both because she's from the privileged group but but it's a privilege she always says i i uh i'm in mark's sister i'm not alienated i i i i'm completely can relate to my work so and that in itself is a privilege that um so i think that there's something to think about in terms of the the process versus the end result because the end result is always going to be a step away from us it's always you know the world is always going to be an imperfect place and it's about how you practice your life uh striving versus necessarily achieving I think we have time for one more question. Um, and I'm just going to go to the person I saw first, gentleman right here. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciated your, your movie. I have a, perhaps it's a technical, perhaps it's a cynical question um, from an intelligence point of view. What role do narcotics have in this whole system of violence? And I say on both sides. I say this because um, whenever you uh, have children engage in violence on both sides, on the one hand, you have the Venezuela-Hezbollah-Cocaine connection. On the other hand, you have, as they call it, the shit that's coming from uh, Pakistan through Iran and perhaps is going through that area. What role, if any, does um, this, um, um, as they say in uh, TV these days, political uh, issue have in um, creating financing? And I also say this because uh, we, in Spain, Spain suffered a, a terrorist attack and, and the financing came from, from that area, but the Spanish government played it, blamed it on ETA. So in your, um, and I also say this as someone born yeah. in the wrong zip code, zip code that was thrown under a bus for the wrong reason 
So I could have been one of those children. What role does narcotics have in the violence, in this intelligence security disaster that Thank we you. are, as Americans, are paying for? Thank you, sir. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure if you if you have a, an answer to this question. Um, so I. I I want to just leave room for one other, uh, if we can take it right behind you, um, the woman right there, please. Hello. Um, my question is for Leah, and it was multiple times you had mentioned your optimism and stuff, and I can relate to that a lot, especially coming from the Middle East. I have a lot of optimism for the future, but do you ever see it like getting in the way of what's best for your clients at times, just because I saw like for um, Ahmed's case, he could have had six years in the juvenile detention, but he ended up with nine years at the end after the appeal. So I just wanted to like ask you, how does that like go along with your work? The, first of all, I'm not sure at all that he would be sentenced to six years. It was an idea. Nobody fixed it, and it was conditioned, under the condition that he uh, pleads guilty for something he didn't do. And as you know, we spoke about it, it was unacceptable. Besides, uh, as I said, the condition was that he should be sentenced before he's 14. But as we know very well uh, from uh, other cases, even civil, civilian cases, the prosecution cannot promise it, and the court cannot promise it. They could not promise it. That's, we were talking about it also in the film. It depends how it will go, and probably he would be sentenced after he's 14, and then he would be sentenced to imprisonment, as he was practically. So there was such a possibility. It was not a very clear one, and uh, we clarified it also to the family. It was a possibility and not a a sure possibility, and anyway, don't forget that the, the case of, of uh, Ahmad was a sensational case. You, you remember seeing Netanyahu speaking about it, um, and it wouldn't work. It would not work otherwise, and finally he was sentenced to 12 years, and then we, in the Supreme Court, we got a deduction of two and a half years, and he serves now time in prison with other juveniles. Um, so I'm the not lawyer on the stage, but there's, I was um, made to understand that Israel has an extremely high conviction rate, maybe um, only second or similar to the US, something uh, roughly around 96% conviction rate. I think when it comes to Palestinian defendants, it's above 99. Um, and that's been the case for years, um, very high conviction rate, and had relatively, relatively uh, moderate punishments. So you were pretty much guaranteed to be convicted, but you weren't necessarily gonna be punished in a, in a horrifically vengeful way. And there's a kind of an economy of what you can expect such and such act, what kind of punishment you can get a specific act would, um, sorry, I'm not, okay, jet lag. You get, you get it? <laughs> Whatever. You could, you could expect a certain punishment for a certain um, offense. And in that year, um, 
it all kind of just, um, it flipped. It, um, uh, punishments were doubled and tripled. There was just a real shift under a new um, a minister of justice and a new government, the likes of which Israel hadn't seen before in terms of just being utterly unabashedly right-wing and having no, um, no self-consciousness and pretenses to being um, uh, being kind of liberal and, and, and appealing to some kind of sensibility, again, in line a little bit with a global trend. And so it, um, and he was the big precedent setting case and they wanted to set a precedent with him in terms of um, especially children taking on aspects of the struggle. Um, it was hard to foresee. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll say that as somebody who was following it, I don't, until he wasn't sentenced to 12 years, it was sort of unimaginable that he would be sentenced to 12 years. I, I, I want to also highlight one important point, which is the venue, uh, the, the jurisdiction. Uh, the ca two cases that you, you see in the film are really handled in Israeli civilian system. Uh, it is Israeli court system that is operating. Actually, the court system itself is in East Jerusalem. It is in, in internationally considered a occupied territory. Salahuddin Street. Salahuddin Street, and so this the the court is standing there, district court, and across the street is also the attorney general's office, where all the ma major decisions are made, not just for the Palestinians in the in the West Bank Gaza, but for a whole country in an occupied territory. So, so think about this irony. But the more other important point is that even if you take the system, the criminal justice system or we call it the criminal system, really, for, for many Palestinians, because there's, they don't see the justice in it. Uh, even for those who are Palestinian citizens, like myself, and I practiced uh, in Israel, they would, you would see disparities in the way that the legal system treat uh, Palestinian defendants. There are studies, uh, recent studies, but even by uh, the Israeli Bar Association in coordination with the uh, Israel's um, uh, court administration that found the disparities in sentencing, the disparities in uh, uh, prosecutions and convictions rates. Uh, so it, it, even if you attained the level of citizen, which Palestinians in East Jerusalem and in the West Bank don't have, you're still subject to a different type of a treatment that reminds us really here to what the system in this country, you know, racial disparities in the criminal justice system and so forth. And you can go on and see a lot of those parallels, you know, uh, treatment of juveniles who are 16, 17 years old as adults. We have it here in New York State. <laughs> this is what actually happens for Palestinians uh, in the occupied territories. Uh, sentencing to life without parole. Israel was the second after the U.S. to, al to allow sentencing juveniles to life without parole. Uh, uh, indefinite detention that you see at Guantanamo uh, is actually happening in, in, as a matter of you know, a matter of daily practice in Israel under the administrative detention uh, regime, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of things to think about, and yet you perceive that as it, it is a system of a country that, you know, is considered in the, here in this country as a democratic country. Uh, but I, I hope that people still start to think critically about it based on the facts and based on just in today's news that the new Israeli minister of justice, who was appointed by Netanyahu, uh, who said, openly, Israeli citizens has to pick and choose which decision of the Israeli Supreme Court they comply with. Uh, and ha had received a response directly from the Chief Justice of the Israeli Supreme Court because that was really crossing a red line of, you know, of the rule of law in the way that it's perceived in Israel.
Unfortunately, we're out of time. There's so much to unpack from the film, and this has been a really rich discussion. And as I said, it's a real honor to be on stage with all of you. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Leah, Jamil, for giving us inspiration. Thank you very, very much. You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, Film at Lincoln Center presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. Film at Lincoln Center. Film lives here.